When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So this is your opinion of me. Thank you for explaining so fully. Perhaps these offenses might have been overlooked had not your pride been hurt by my honesty and admitting scruples about our relationship. Could you expect me to rejoice in the inferiority of your circumstances? And those are the words of a gentleman. From the first moment I met you, your arrogance and conceit, your selfish disdain for the feelings of others made me realize that you were the last man in the world I could ever be prevailed upon to marry. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. My name is Grace Fowler, and today I have a very special guest on to discuss Pride and Prejudice 2005 version with Kira Knightley. My guest this week is a dear friend, Tatiana Kuprathlin, D. She is a clinical psychologist in private practice in New York, and she provides therapy and psychological assessment to children, adolescents, and adults. And most importantly, we've been best friends since like junior high. So Tatiana, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. This is so exciting. I'm a big fan of you (laughs) and the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Let's tell the, the listeners a little bit about why we chose Pride and Prejudice 2005 specifically. Uh, well, the timing really coincided with, I think, our, um, you know, middle school uh, love sick uh, <laughs> sleepover having years mm-hmm. um, where we were, you know, uh, really into sort of soppy, sappy romantic movies. Um, and we really, really loved this movie. And we watched it pretty much every time we got together. Uh, mm-hmm. And full of uh, conflict and emotion. And we probably, I don't know, maybe we were drawn to it because like as future psychologists, each like kid or like a daughter in the, in the movie has her own like sort of like personality and like interesting motivation. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, maybe that's why we were into it. I'm not, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think definitely as like a pre-adolescent girl, I was most drawn to Elizabeth Bennett who's the Uh second sister, because she just was like, not only so expressive, but she really didn't seem to care what anyone thought about her. And I actually was rewatching the scene where Darcy first proposes to her and she's like, how dare you? Here's all the reasons why you suck. Here's all the reasons why this would never happen. And I think as like a, you know, 11 year old girl, I was like, wow, I like want to be like that one day where I can just like say what's on my mind and not really stumble for words or like fear the consequences of what I'm saying especially to someone who's more powerful than me right uh or that I don't have like a a solid relationship with so I think I was I think yeah us watching it at that age there was like role models there on top of the like romance that we were like oh this is new (laughs) yeah I I agree I like I think I totally identified with Lizzie as well not only because like she was sort of like portrayed as this like bookworm and um which I think I like identified with highly 
but yeah for the same reason and isn't it like I mean I guess we're gonna get to this at the end but like isn't it funny that like we are sort of drawn to this strong woman character who sort of like stands her ground and speaks her mind in this like world dominated by men like I mean this is like what the book is about sort of her like asserting her own autonomy in the midst of this like situation where she is sort of rendered powerless and like we're still dealing with that same same sorts of situations you know yeah. in 2005 and now so yeah I think her character is a really like um compelling one yeah and probably was for us as as kids too yeah you know and then we also probably wore out our other friends with how often we asked for this to be the sleepover movie um. <laughs> yeah well it was either that or like I remember one of the other choices being the notebook and I was like Ugh, no yeah. <laughs> no that that the top three I think were Pride and Prejudice notebook and then a walk to remember remember we had a friend who always wanted to watch that and it was yeah. like there's we're not getting anything Horrible. good out of this no sadness no <laughs> so why not watch Pride and Prejudice got a happy ending yeah happy ending it's like somewhat funny you know um no one's Karen dying your nightly is so beautiful yeah so that. yeah so that's kind of why so we're in short we're both psychologists we both watched this movie probably thousands of times and throughout our lifetime like I've definitely revisited it as an adult um and looked back on it when we were watching it as a, a child but uh we have a couple of things that we wanted to talk about today in the context of the movie but in case you have never encountered Pride and Prejudice just a quick rundown of what the movie or the book in general is about so it's based on a Jane Austen novel that was written in like the 1800s it's the story of a family with five daughters two parents who are they're kind of like on the edge of poverty and well-being in this like English society um they live out in the country but they definitely struggle with money and because they don't have any sons uh they they need to bring in men to the family to bring money in that's just kind of the reality mm-hmm. and one day in an estate down down the country a bit uh, <laughs> a young gentleman named Mr. Bingley moves in with his sister and his friend Mr. Darcy and they are incredibly wealthy and the frenzy begins to marry off at least some of these daughters to the two men uh and chaos ensues well an orderly yep. British repressed chaos <laughs> yeah 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 not too much chaos but you yeah. know <laughs> intrigue and and witty dialogue yes yeah and yeah. if you know anyone who's familiar with Jane Austen's work knows that she's she was all about like wit and her female characters always tended to be like very intelligent very quick on their feet and so I think Elizabeth Bennett is kind of the like archetype of what Jane Austen wrote about and probably her like self-insert uh of who she kind of saw herself as but Lizzie has four other sisters and they like you said before they each have their own personality and I think they each represent a different way which in which women like fit into this society mm-hmm. yeah so the first thing I thought we could talk about is this trope that comes up in movies a lot that honestly I think Jane Austen was one of the pioneers of but mm-hmm. the trope of like hate turning into love um and as you and I know Elizabeth Bennett absolutely hates Mr. Darcy when she first meets him. He says some very snooty things about her and her family, which is fair that she hates him. Um, But then kind of the passion of their like despising of each other eventually turns into like a very powerful romance and they they fall in love at the end of the movie, at the end of the book, blah, blah, blah. So I thought we could talk about like why 
do movies always put this this trope in front of us that hate eventually turns into love or that they're related Hmm. well you know I was thinking about this because what I think one of the things is that you know if you sort of contrast Lizzie's Lizzie's relationship with Miss with uh Mr. Darcy to some of the other relationships in the in the movie or the story if you ever read it or you watch this movie um a lot of the other uh relationships are sort of superficial you have some of the sisters being um you know married off to other uh what's the what's the uh, the guy's name that was he sort of like is into but then oh uh uh wingham wingham yeah okay so when when one of the other sisters okay spoiler alert (laughs) spoiler alert when (laughs) when uh when one of the other sisters you know, sort of what goes off with, with him, it's all like sort of this very superficial connection that they have. He's sort of like handsome and and supposed to be rich, even though he's really not. And that relationship eventually sort of like dissolve, later dissolves. Yeah. I think wrestling through your hatred of somebody sort of lends a complexity to the relationship, which mm. I think then like can very easily turn to love because you sort of have to like uh, contend with, the person and all the things that you may not like about them mm-hmm. um, or like you have to work through all of these really like complex emotions in your relationship. So I think that's like part of why Lizzie and Darcy's like love ends up becoming so passionate because they've like wrestled through this like hate and the things that they most like despise about each other. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, specifically for Lizzie and Darcy is that like I was saying before, I always thought that she was so articulate and able to express herself and she's able to tell him exactly the reasons why she doesn't like him Mm -hmm. in the beginning. And later on in the film, when they have fallen in love and are like, you know, done hating each other, there's like, they have dialogue where they kind of acknowledge like, Oh, I thought this way about you, but it really is a a different, I I was seeing you in the wrong way. Like she saw Mm -hmm. him as like, snobby and stuck up and it's really that he's like very protective of his reputation and his younger sister and so he like defends himself by distancing himself by being snobby and she's able Mm -hmm. to kind of still acknowledge that he's snobby but to see him in a different light and I think it's yeah she had to spend all this time wrestling with this part of him that is not the best part of his personality but once you understand the kind of the motivation behind it she's able to incorporate that into why she loves him so much because she sees the motivation for it. Right. And isn't even that I'm like remembering now that there's that scene where she, she, well, he proposes and then she accuses him of all these things. Mm-hmm. And then he writes that letter where he like sort of addresses all of her points of hatred, like point by point. Yeah. And explains like why he does things the way that he does. It, it sort of reminds me of how like sometimes negative emotions are. I think there's, there's that research that, you know, like people who are depressed or see themselves more uh, realistically than people who aren't. So like maybe, maybe negative emotions are sort of more, um, I don't know, like realistic in that sense, like her hatred sort of him sort of allows her to see him uh, from a, a bit of a skewed perspective, but also sort of like see his flaws more clearly. And then that sort of like paves the way for a closer connection. Yeah, it's a uh, it's closer to a realistic perspective of him, even though it's skewed negative, whereas with yeah. Wickham she is enamored with him when she first meets him and is unable to see his flaws or believe when other people say he's a bad person because she's so enamored with him. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. 
I also think that both hate and love are pretty high arousal emotions and our brains aren't super good at differentiating between Mm. arousal, like types of arousal. We just know there's like arousal happening and not like sexual arousal, but just like we're heightened. Mm -hmm. Something is happening. And it's like, I think it's related to that same theory of like, when we see a snake, we just react. And then later we go back and we say, oh, it's because I was afraid of a snake. Mm-hmm. And I think with Lizzie and Darcy, like she was reacting to him and was just so like, I don't want to say frenzied, but just kind of like she was aroused by his mm-hmm. kind of snooty comments. And when she went to look back at it, she thought as hate. But the reality was she was just drawn to him for some reason. And right. if her first interaction hadn't been him saying she was like basically a low budget, like gold digger. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the arousal would have been interpreted as like attraction to him. Right, right. I mean, and I think like watching this story in a visual format really plays that out well. Because mm. like Keira Knightley and um, what's the actor? I don't know the actor that plays Mr. Darcy. Matthew McFadden. Matthew McFadden. Yeah, they both have this like smoldering like kind mm-hmm. of look that they give each other, which like is sort of the same, sort of the same throughout the movie. And I think what the what the filmmakers are trying to convey is that there is some sort of attraction, not maybe like a romantic attraction at first, but there's some mm-hmm. sort of like connection between them that's like so intense and right like she sort of attributes that to hate um in the beginning and then slowly it transforms over the course of time yeah but he attributes it to love from the very beginning that's what he tells her when he first when he does the first bad proposal he's like Mm -hmm. I literally am obsessed with you and she's like I couldn't have known because you're such an asshole (laughs) right well I mean like this goes like to I think like what we're going to talk about later which is just like well, why, why could that have been? I mean, she is like the, the less powerful one in this position, mm-hmm. sort of, he, see, he has the freedom to sort of attribute it to love, whereas she's really worried about like how he perceives her family and all these other things that make it much more complicated for her. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> Patriarchy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had another thought about what you're saying about the filmmakers. Oh yeah. Like they always have these like smoldering looks. They, there is an intensity to their relationship even before like we're in the romance phase. And yeah. I, I think part of that is to show that like Lizzie and Darcy, I like if you talk about in the canon of literature, I think are known to have one of the more authentic or intense connections. And even in the book, when compared to Jane and, and Mr. Bingley, her older sister, mm-hmm. uh, like their attraction is immediate. Everyone acknowledges it, but it's also like tame like Jane Mm -hmm. is a very gentle person Mr. Bingley is like very shy and their relationship is it is intense in its own way but it's a quiet intensity whereas like Darcy and Lizzie are like passionate they're both like powerful emotional people and I think the filmmakers were weaving that throughout there too is like these people are kind of destined to come together uh, Mm -hmm. but it's going to be big it's not going to be this like gentle pastoral (laughs) romance like Jane and, and Bingley have right Right. Okay. So another thing that I think comes up in this movie a lot is uh, the concept of like birth order, meaning different things for each sibling. So we've Mm -hmm. talked before, there's five sisters or five daughters in this family. Uh, The eldest is Jane. Then we have Lizzie. And then, oh, I always get stuck on the the next one. It's Mary. 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 Then the whatever the the other one's name is. Kitty and Lydia. (laughs) Yeah, okay. See, this goes yeah. into the middle, ch- the middle <laughs> child that we're going to talk about. Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> uh, Kitty and Lydia 
I always got them confused. They get mixed up together. And then Mary, I think Mary is actually the youngest. But the anyway, each sister has like personality traits that are, are kind of attributed to like where they fall in the family. So Jane is supposed, she's the more like level headed, sensible, like she knows what she needs to do for the family. She needs to get married. Uh, Lizzie as the second oldest, she's a little more feisty, um, but also like bears a lot of responsibility for like kind of gathering the younger ones. She's kind of always hurting them from like event to event. And then honestly, the Mary gets forgotten. She's just like, she's truly stuck in the middle. And then Lydia and Kitty yeah. are like the problem children. And Lydia is the one who runs away with, with Wickham. Right. Right. And they do kind of, I mean, yeah, to some extent, they really do sort of fall into those stereotypes that you have about, you know, the older ones being more responsible and then the younger one. I mean, you could consider you could consider Lizzie to be a, a middle child in the sense of like, you know, she's sort of like acting out to, to, mm-hmm. to find her place. And then Mary is also in the middle, but like adapts to it in a different way by vanishing her own stuff. <laughs> her own sort of hobby just like being alone at the piano which is yeah. like kind of her companion and then you have like kitty and lydia that basically get to do whatever they want and are sort of like spoiled as the babies of the family yeah. um so it's interesting like even even in you know a regency era novel <laughs> you can have these things played out yeah and i i remember from the film that the that mrs bennett their mother will say things like she can't control Kitty and Lydia, like she has no ability to make them behave. And there's yeah. also a kind of sense of like, well, by the time she's hit child number five, like she's worn out, she's exhausted. Right. And so it's almost like a, that's almost like a sentiment I think we hear in modern times of like, I'm worn out by all these children. So the younger ones just get to kind of do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I thought this was interesting to talk about because I know that my family systems classes I don't know if you learned this as well, but there used to be a pretty big emphasis on birth order mm-hmm. and some people like Bowen and I, think, I can't remember the guy that he stole it from, but Bowen and other family systems people theorized that like the oldest child would develop leadership qualities, responsibility, and like have more authority. And then the youngest would be like carefree and creative, but more dependent. Middle children would feel neglected and be like peacemaker mediator to the family. And then only children would enjoy kind of like exclusive attention and resources from adults and feel more comfortable with adults. Mm -hmm. Um, However, I found this really interesting article that was written in 1972 that Mm -hmm. was like uh, essentially a meta-analysis of birth order effects research. And the author was like, yeah, this doesn't exist. (laughs) Same thing. Yeah. And there also used to be a theory that like, uh, birth order would determine if you would develop certain psychological disorders like schizophrenia. Mm. And her, yeah, her point was like, that's not true. We don't have large enough effect sizes. There's some evidence that younger children may have higher risks of schizophrenia in larger families, but that seems to be more of an epigenetic issue of like, by the time you've had seven children, there may be like resource issues or like even depletion. DNA. yeah. Yeah. Your DNA is like frayed. I don't know. That's, that's probably not how it works. I don't know. Don't quote me on that. Uh, We're not I'm biologists. Not expert. <laughs> I don't know. I just imagine like a little, okay, <laughs> whatever. Anyway. Yeah. I, yeah. That, that seems, that seems right to me. And yeah, it just makes me think of like, you know, I, I do wonder how much, well, first of all, I mean, one thought I have about that is 
you know, just because you're a middle child or a younger child or an older child, there are so many variations in family structure, especially these days where people's childbearing age can really extend multiple decades. I mean, now mm-hmm. with IVF, people have children um, much later. Um, and so, you know, you could be a you could be a middle child, but like you could have a, a sibling that's one sibling that's 10 years younger than you and another sibling that's 10 years older than you. And then in some ways you have like an upbringing that's closer to an only child mm. or closer to an older child because your, you know, next oldest sibling is wherever off to college or something. Yeah. Um. So there's so much variation within that, that it would be hard for there to actually be, you know, consistent trends. But beyond that, I feel like so much of that stuff, these stereotypes that we have about different kids and birth order, I feel, you know, it's, it's, it's similar to what, you know, we've, we've found to some extent about gender and the way that we mm-hmm. sort of reinforce things about boys or girls like you know if it's the oldest child we might tell the oldest child all the time that they need to be responsible and they need to be an example and mm-hmm. so then of course they become that way um, or with the younger child you know people will say oh you're the baby um, so you know to what extent is that just us playing out our own expectations on kids even though it's not sort of like inborn yeah, and I think even in Pride and Prejudice, there's examples of that, which I think is quite mm-hmm. sophisticated for a piece of art that was made before we even had this like research or idea of birth order being deterministic. Um, but yeah. like Jane is very aware that her role as the oldest daughter is to get married first mm-hmm. um, because none of the other daughters can get married until Jane is married off. That's like the way the like implicit, not even implicit, it's the explicit way the culture works. And she's been socialized to know that through her parents, like explicitly telling her because it's the only conversation her mom has with her, but also through kind of like the culture it seeps in of if everyone around you who was born first is on this mission to get married as soon as possible, you're going to absorb that as like, though, that's my role as the oldest daughter. Mm -hmm. And right. I mean, like you can also, I guess, choose to defy some of those roles I mean if we're considering Lizzie I mean Lizzie is sort of an older child but she's also maybe a middle child and she sort of um defies both of those stereotypes in the sense of she's not the mediator she's sort of (laughs) shaking things up by denying proposals and doing all these and having these standards um and she's also you know not really um doing maybe the responsible thing again because she's not like settling for what other people want from her so right there's also that like you may have a role that's placed upon you and you but the person is still an individual they can decide to sort of like throw off that shackle or like assume it so yeah it makes sense to me that it it would be hard to like really say you know this is the way middle children always are this is the way uh youngest children always are I think of birth order effects as like astrology (laughs) as like the, the, the fact of being born a middle child, like the fact itself that you were born like third or fourth doesn't have anything to do with your personality development. Just like the fact that you were born in July doesn't make you a cancer. I mean, it does technically, but it doesn't make you take on those traits, but there are things that kind of line up as a coincidence or enough trends from either like a cohort effect Mm -hmm. or through socialization that 
you're able to relate to it when people say like, oh, well, middle, all middle children are like this. There's enough in that description that you like maybe identify with that. Same right. as like when you read your horoscope for the day and it's like generic enough that you're like, oh yeah, that is me. That is how a Taurus would act on a Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just general enough. <laughs> right. Well, I also wonder too, like culturally, I don't know anything about this, but whether it's similar, like whether other culture, like whether, hmm. yeah, whether other cultures have, or what, what different cultures like think about birth order and whether it's the same, like cross-culturally, I don't know. Or even like back then, like even back in the Regency era, <laughs> I don't know what they thought about like, you know, what the oldest child was supposed to do or the middle child or like whether that even mattered as opposed to other things, like whether you were a boy or a girl or. Oh, and it, and it seems like it was pretty much older ch- child got the focus and then everybody else was. <laughs> stragglers it was kind of like we got to we got to deal with this first one and then we can think about everyone else we really don't care about the middle ones (laughs) right send them off to another family yeah right and y'all become nuns for all we care but we gotta get one of them married (laughs) right right and then like you know you're a girl or you're a boy or I don't know you were skilled in some way or not skilled I don't know there's probably other things that well yeah by it probably varied by class like if you weren't upper class it probably was like, you just need to be able to work. <laughs> right. I don't really care when you were born. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, I thought that was an interesting thing. I think Pride and Prejudice itself focuses so much on those conversations about right. where they fall in the family that it, it makes it a good jumping off point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think it's time for us to talk about the most important topic, which is the pressure of the patriarchy. <laughs> yes. Yes. We have many points on this topic so many points um Mm -hmm. points that have probably been made on the show before as it is one of my favorite areas to talk about but I think just kind of the first red flag that jumps out at you in this film is like how much is focused on marriage and Mm -hmm. that it is essentially like the only goal for the women Mm -hmm. and the men and it, it goes in different ways. Like the goal for a woman is to like find a husband that can take care of you for the rest of your life. So he's got to be rich. And for the men, it's like, you've got to find a woman who's essentially not going to embarrass you <laughs> and will mm-hmm. like help you get an heir. And that's like the first line of the book is right. like something about a man in possession of a good fortune is like, he's looking for Must a woman. Be in want of a wife. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly. And isn't it like, oh, maybe this is better to end on, but you know, just as with all rom-coms, I think we, we have the, we have the, uh, the, um, sort of conflictual feelings of like, oh, you really enjoy this, but then also like, hey, wait a minute, because, you know, we've talked, I guess, about how much we admired Lizzie as, as young girls, Mm -hmm. and how she's defying these expectations, and she's standing up for herself, and speaking her mind, and then at the end, guess what happens? she gets married <laughs> um you know so she she sort of bucked all those stereotypes and only to a certain extent right like mm-hmm. it does it, it would never the book would never end with her just being like peace out I'm gonna be single I'm happy with my life I'm gonna go like become a career woman I mean that just like wasn't possible within the or maybe it was I won't I shouldn't say it's impossible but it was highly unlikely within the context right. of the culture that she was in but anyway it's just like interesting to see how far I guess maybe Jane Austen thought that women could test the limits during Mm. that time 
Um, and, you know, even to have a character like Elizabeth Bennet was like sort of um, countercultural. And like, even though she didn't totally like surpass the bounds of her culture, like of her culture in terms of like what was expected of her as a woman, she still, you know, even like speaking your mind or rejecting even one proposal was like a huge, a huge deal. Yeah. And I think we even see for Lizzie that it takes like a psychological toll on her that she is always pushing against these stereotypes. Um, Cause she does, she does reject Darcy's first proposal. And then there's also a really wild side plot where a priest is trying to marry (laughs) any one of the daughters. He doesn't care who he'll take anyone. And he essentially works his way down uh, from oldest to youngest and then ends up marrying Lizzie's friend. Mm -hmm. Um, what's his name is that call mr collins mr. Yeah. yeah he's not mm-hmm. a priest but he's like he's a religious person who can get married he's not like yeah. a catholic priest um and she refuses his proposal as well as he works right. his way down the, the line and there is a a moment where in the film where lizzie is kind of like she's talking to jane and she's like i don't know if it's ever going to happen for me like i want you to get married but she's kind of doubtful if like she'll ever find anyone that kind of like mm-hmm. fits her um, yeah. And that's actually when she starts to realize like, oh, Darcy is probably the person that will fit me the best, but I told him to go away forever. Um, but you see this kind of psychological toll on her of like, she's mm-hmm. pushing against her culture's expectations. She's pushing against her family's expectations. And she's taking on this burden of like, she's the reason why Jane may end up marrying someone she doesn't want to, because Jane feels this pressure to marry so that the other girls can get married as well right and their relationship kind of starts to be affected by this pressure of someone has to pull the trigger and and find a man right and someone has to sort of uh play by the rules in order Mm -hmm. to allow some of the other sisters to maybe have some leeway um the women have to share this like sucky burden of trying to figure out um how much these like sort of these strictures that they're put in can give and who's going to take on what responsibility for that yeah um yeah (laughs) and lizzie even like she compares herself to jane of like jane is jane is described as like the more beautiful one but it's like Mm -hmm. Kara knightley is playing lizzie so it's it's hard to see it in the movie but like and jane is played by rosamund pike who's also incredibly beautiful and then went on to be gone girl so what a range she has um But like Jane is described as like being not only more physically attractive, but a more attractive mate in that she Mm. doesn't talk back. She kind of has the like attitude you're expecting in a wife. And Lizzie really compares herself to Jane a lot and sees herself as like the less favorable sister. And Mm. I imagine that also adds to like her psychological burden. And what do you think makes her compare herself to other women in these way? Uh, I would say the patriarchy. Correct. Yeah. Right. Well, and, 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 and it's it's internalized, right? Because the parents are always sort of like comparing them in this way, mm-hmm. um, and like talking about them in this way. And I, I, like we'll probably we'll we'll get to Mr. and Mrs. Bennett, the parents, and like the the ways that they sort of like fit into it, I guess. But um, you know, perhaps she's able to like sort of speak her mind and, and talk about this because she's like sort of portrayed as Mr. Bennett, the father's favorite daughter. Mm. Um, and so he being a man sort of like gives her permission to be this way, even though it's like not quite what is expected of her. Um, so perhaps that's like one of the reasons why she's able to act in the way she does at all, because she's sort of like given permission within her family to do it. But then out in the wider 
sort of society that she's in, it's really seen as a, as a drawback. <laughs> um, I was also thinking about, you know, like Lizzie in contrast to her friend, the friend's, I don't know, why, don't, why are we not remembering any of these people's names? The friend's name, whatever. So Lizzie has this friend who, who in the end accepts uh, Collins's proposal. And uh, I think in the movie, I'm not sure if this is in the book, but in the movie, there's a scene where like, Lizzie confronts her and is like, how could you marry him? You know, he's so awful. Yeah. And she's like, I have to. Yeah. I have no choice for me. I think she says something like, I'm an old maid, or, you know, yeah. and which was like, she's probably like 22. What? <laughs> Whatever. Um, you know, she she's like, there's nothing coming for me. I have to do it. So you really get a sense of just how risky it is for her to to deny these proposals and also immense pressure that these women feel to just like settle or or give in or like do what they need to do because this is like their their sole goal in life yeah well and their, and their financial stability is tied to marriage and like essentially right. the only way for them to make money not the only again we don't want to do nevers and alwayses but the main path for them to have financial stability is to either get married or to somehow inherit a large amount of money, which in the Bennett family's case is not possible because mm-hmm. Mr. Collins is actually their cousin and he's about to, mm-hmm. he will inherit all of their father's estate because he's the essentially the next male family member. And so that's one of the reasons why there's so much pressure on one of them to marry Mr. Collins because he could take all of their family's money away from them and by just virtue of being like somewhat related to the family, even though they had zero relationship with him until he he shows up and then he marries their friend charlotte Ah, (laughs) um and so and and jane austen has other books where the women inherit money from their parents Mm -hmm. i'm drawing a blank on which one focuses on that but there are other books where that's a possibility but she sets up pride and prejudice for there to be for that to be taken away that lizzie Mm -hmm. probably could have been allowed to be even more out there if they knew the money was to be inherited to the girls mm-hmm. and that Lizzie is actually, she is running out of options because Mr. Collins now has been taken. She doesn't know that Mr. Darcy is still interested in her. And she believes that like no one will ever th- find her attractive enough to marry. And that's her essentially only way of making any money or having any economic like stability. Mm-hmm. Well said. <laughs> Dark. <laughs> It's bleak. It's a bleak world out there for women. Yeah. Every time we complain about having to go to work now, we should remember <laughs> how it yeah. used to be. <laughs> I'm not good at no. I'm okay at embroidery, but uh <laughs> I think I'd really you know that's it. There's aren't there's that scene where they're like talking about all the they're talking about aren't they talking about Mr. Darcy's younger sister and yeah. they're sort of like talking about all the arts that she's like <laughs> fluent in and they're like oh she plays the piano so well and she also can paint furniture and <laughs> embroider and write letters and, and- <laughs> yeah. oh yeah so yeah. I, I would only be good to like one of those things <laughs> not be a good high society lady and also I'd have a bad attitude the whole time <laughs> yeah 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 that too you know yeah that's yeah that's one of the first interactions that uh Darcy and Lizzie have is Bingley's sister is trying to get oh, with right. Darcy yes, and she, yes, yes, she yes. one of her ways for trying to get with him is to like talk to him about his little sister 
and she's like they get into an argument about like what makes a good lady and and she's like well what about your sister Darcy and then he lists like all of her they call them accomplishments and Lizzie is like essentially she's like wow that girl sounds really busy (laughs) how could she be good at any one thing if she does all of those things and that's one of the first arguments they have with each other which I thought was very funny Mm -hmm. right like even then she's sort of like come on now (laughs) And isn't there's like there is a scene at one point where they make her play the piano mm-hmm. in front of everyone, uh, and she's very self conscious about it, um, and you know plays like okay, but clearly doesn't play to the standards that are expected of her. And yeah, you know again like it sort of speaks to this like performance mm. that these women constantly have to sort of live up to. Um, at any moment you could be asked to perform in this way in front of people to to prove your worth as a woman and to prove your worth as a potential bride yeah and I'm glad you brought up that that concept of performance because I've talked about gender performance and like Judith Butler before on actually the episode on Bo Burnham if anyone wants to go back and listen to that um but like Butler's idea of like essentially we are on a stage and we perform our gender and receive mm-hmm. feedback from the audience about how to shift our performance. And right. these women have a very strict script, the women and the men, honestly, the men have the same type of like strictures, but they have a very strict script and the audience they are performing for is uh, not afraid to throw tomatoes and boo them. And they're very mm-hmm. quickly corrected if their gender performance is not to the standards of the gender roles prescribed to them. Right. Right. And it's so funny because there's so many sort of examples of that, even within the movie of all these ways that Elizabeth does not perform to the way that her gender is. Like there's a scene where she um, she goes to see Jane who gets sick and is staying at Mr. Bingley's estate. She gets sick with a cold and she like walks across the fields to go visit her sick sister and make sure she's okay. And she comes in and she's like, her dress is dirty and her cheeks are flush and she basically gets scolded and they say like oh that's unladylike that's not how a woman is supposed to appear so even from the very beginning of the story she's sort of being criticized for all these ways she doesn't perform in the way that she's supposed to yeah and even though her appearance should be interpreted as it's an urgent matter she's so worried about her sister that she rushed over here they stop and focus on like well that's not what a real lady would do and you have a muddy hem like what a nasty person you are right (laughs) yeah and I think it I think it's the same for the men as well um because Darcy actually gets quite a lot of pushback from the society like the the other people who live in the country uh because he doesn't want to like dance at the dances Mm -hmm. he never asks Mm -hmm. anyone to dance and he's not doing his like performance of a husband looking for a wife or a man Mm -hmm. looking for a wife. He's just like, honestly, being a little wallflower and sitting in the back, like not even drinking or eating. He's just like sitting in the corner being sad. Yeah. Darcy's a sad boy at heart. Um, but everybody starts to talk and like, obviously it gets back to him. Like, you can't tell me that that gossip doesn't get back to him, but everyone's feedback is like, he's what's wrong with him. He's not Mm -hmm. acting like the other bachelors we're used to seeing he's performing wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and for Mr. Bennett too, you know, like this idea that you're supposed to control your women mm. and he has all these, these, these daughters and a wife that are um, at various times throughout the, 
throughout the story perceived as sort of like being out of control. Um, and so in a way, and even maybe Jane Austen sort of portrays him a little bit this way, like sort of like weak and submissive and mm. mild mannered um, in a way that is is very different from how like um, heads of household maybe are supposed to supposed to be. So he too, like as a married man has this sort of um, expectation placed upon him as well. Yeah, everybody's shackled by these gender expectations and Lizzie's like if we just stopped (laughs) we'd all be happier right well I think this is a great time to transition to our final topic which you are a resident expert on um but you wanted to bring up this point about Mrs. Bennett and her psychosomatic (laughs) illness yes yeah so you know okay so let me let me give a backstory of, of how this came about which is that uh, when I was in graduate school, I had to write a paper uh, diagnosing a uh, literary character mm. with <laughs> these these grad school assignments, guys. Good times. Um, and I decided to do one on Pride and Prejudice, and I I did it on Mrs. Bennett. And at the time, I diagnosed her with histrionic personality disorder. Ooh, <laughs> which we will. Uh, Great. Did you come up with a definition? Did you find a definition? Yeah. Histrionic okay. personality disorder is essentially a personality condition marked by unstable emotions, distorted self-image, and an overwhelming desire to be noticed. Okay. There you go. So for context in the story, Mrs. Bennett is sort of this um, nervous, agitated, older woman who is always complaining about her nerves. She's like fainting. She's lying on the couch. She's like, uh, like fluttering about like, oh, my nerves, my nerves, whenever yeah. anything um, intense or distressing happens. And she's really portrayed throughout the book as sort of being inappropriate, mm-hmm. rude, too loud, too flighty, too um, excitable, and causing everyone embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's sort of really seen as like this, this um, obnoxious, uh, character throughout yeah. the book is really it, it, like sort of exhibitionist in her in her way of behaving um and so when I, anyway when I did this assignment I thought oh this is so clear she is sort of if we if we look at her it's just her individual personality it, it seems really clear she's like using this um behavior to kind of draw attention to herself Mm-hmm. Um, to draw attention to her, her uh, daughters who need who need to be married, and you know she's she's um, so distressed about her daughters getting married off and the house being, um, you know, her estate being let go, uh, that she's sort of using these these behaviors, this fainting and these nerves. I mean, unconsciously maybe, but still. Um, Sort of like using these things to to get the security that she needs um and to get people to reassure her and to gain sympathy for herself so that maybe someone will bury her daughters um all unconscious perhaps but that was sort of my thinking about her individually uh but grace let me or uh sent me this this great book uh while i was on maternity leave recently <laughs> um which which is really great um and I think Grace will probably put it in the notes of the of the show. But um, yes. it's, a, it's a book by Suzanne O'Sullivan, who is, I believe, um, 
neurologist. Mm-hmm. I think so. She she visits all of these people in different countries who are having psychosomatic illness. So for those who aren't familiar with what psychosomatic illness is, um, it is a uh, sort of syndrome of, of of psychological distress that sort of manifests in these um, in these physical ways. Um, and there's all different types of psychosomatic illness, but traditionally it's been seen as sort of um, psychological, uh, all in all in somebody's head. Um, it, often these these illnesses don't have like a medical explanation mm-hmm. that you can see on a on an on imaging or in blood tests or anything like that. Um, so they're they're described as being like you know all in somebody's head usually has to do with someone's like psychology there's there's a reason they're acting this way sometimes often it's very these these illnesses are viewed in a very negative light as someone trying to seek attention or um, gain something by Mm. acting ill um and so Susanna Sullivan writes about how many of these illnesses although we see them as individual problems are actually often manifestations of cultural distress. And so mm-hmm. there are many examples she gives. Uh, one of them uh, is of um, in, in many places where uh, immigrant children are seeking asylum, they will, uh, there, there have been cases of, of illness in which these children fall into what, a sort of like a coma mm. um, and become really, uh, they, they sort of like withdraw into themselves um, they're still like seen as like active and in, in all kinds of medical tests. Like mm-hmm. their, their brain activity is still going. They're able to eat so- sometimes, uh, sometimes they have to be fed through feeding too, but, but essentially like their, their brains are showing that they're not in a coma, but they act comatose. Mm-hmm. Um, and she writes about how these children are expressing the distress of their families who um, most often this illness would come on when their families were denied asylum in the country that they were staying in and so these children were communicating the helpless feeling of being denied asylum and having to go back to a country where they're in danger and so obviously these children weren't doing this to manipulate it was just an expression um, of the distress that that the valid distress that they're experiencing Mm -hmm. Um, and it really could be explained by sort of this cultural matrix that they were in and the specific cultural situation that they found themselves in so anyway relating that to mrs bennett if we look at like her, her um, symptoms from a cultural perspective, um, they actually make a lot of sense. Um, you know, these attacks of nerves and these, and, and, and these fainting spells and the hypochondriasis and things like that. Um, these were very common for women in that era. Like if you think about and look back on like historical accounts of things like uh, hysteria mm-hmm. in women, um, there's all kinds of things written about that. Um, and often we sort of blamed these women for their hysteria and saw it in this very similar way of trying to get attention, trying to gain something by being hysterical. Um, but we can look at it in a very different way, which is to look at it as an expression of distress about living in a society where women are not taken seriously, um, are abused, are potentially you know, headed towards poverty or some kind of other difficult social situation that these symptoms can sort of be, for instance, for Mrs. Bennett was the only way perhaps of her expressing and being taken seriously how much, uh, how distressing it was to live in an environment mm-hmm. like that. So I thought that that was really interesting. And uh, 
sort of gave me pause about how I had sort of viewed her in my mind um, mm. when I sort of zoomed out and sort of put her within the context of the culture and the and the sort of like societal context that she was in. Yeah. And after you you had sent that information for me before we started recording, I, I was thinking also of not just only in her culture, but in, in her role in her family system, where mm-hmm. she talks a lot about throughout the film, she's talking about how it's kind of like her job to get these girls married. Like her last remaining job as a mother is to get these girls married off Mm. and her behavior her sort of like acting out her fainting whatever could be also seen I think as a way of taking the attention or the criticism away from her children and putting it on herself Mm. of like don't don't look at my girl it's not my girls that can't find a husband like it's not a deficit in them look at me I'm up I'm on the couch like (laughs) passed out And hopefully then my, you know, this attention or this like attribution of failure goes Mm -hmm. to Mrs. Bennett and not to her children so that they still have a chance to get married. And that that's consistent anything with her culture of like the role that mothers and older women were taking in this society, but also an added desperation of like, she's got all these daughters and everyone sees her husband as like a laughingstock they see her as a laughing stack. So she's leaning into it in a way to draw attention away from anyone who might criticize her children and give them a better chance of finding someone, especially with these eligible, eligible bachelors who just came to town. Right. Right. And that like, is, you know, there's like, if you watch the movie, there's lots of sort of examples of that, of her sort of like, you know, bragging about her daughters and then and like saying how great they are and then like falling over <laughs> and, you know, doing all these ridiculous things. Um, yeah, I think it, it goes to show how important it is to sort of um, place somebody like an understand, to understand ourselves and other people in the context that we're in, not just as like a person in a vacuum. Yeah. And although we might cluster the types of behaviors that Mrs. Bennett has under the label of something like histrionic personality disorder, it doesn't negate the like etiology of her symptoms, like that mm-hmm. it's not we also don't know her her history right we don't know her childhood like what kind of trauma she's been through maybe how she developed these these behaviors but it does give it more a meaning and under uh, ability to understand her when we put it in the context of her society and kind of the way that social distress was treated in women it was kind of like right. this was the only outlet you had to, to express yourself mm-hmm. also everybody be getting sick <laughs> yeah. i was also thinking of like like we talked about how jane goes to visit Mr. Bingley mm-hmm. and then she gets so sick she can't come home well right it's like debatable if she's so sick she can't come home but essentially they're like well you're already there you might as well like tuck in right. and I was thinking of like oh is there a potential there's like a psychosomatic element there of mm-hmm. like she's so desperate to be close to him that her body is like falling apart with the pressure mm-hmm. on her in addition to the Bennett's are the poorest family in the country maybe there's also like poor immune system due to poor nutrition. Mm-hmm. And so she will get sick after being out in the rain for 30 seconds. Right. And so like all of these things, I think have multiple explanations and that's why this is such a rich text. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And to, to view it like through all of those different, different associations, I think it's, it's fun to sort of um, get caught up in like the context of the story and, and um you know, think about all these different like romances and intrigue, but it's also like really interesting to sort of place it and like think about, I think, I think to the original reader, this was all sort of 
maybe clearer. Mm. Um, and there's probably sort of meanings and communication that, you know, we're missing as, as sort of like modern viewers or readers of this story. But it's interesting to like think about that because it does lend sort of more complexity to to the story, to think about the social implications and the social context of of this romance. Yeah. And I think that mirrors the work that we do in mm-hmm. mental health or psychology is that we try to not see our patients as individuals in a vacuum, but to consider their larger larger contexts and help them to see how their context influence their behavior so that they don't put all of the pressure on themselves of like getting better or, you know, changing, but of understanding their behavior and their reactions better. Right. Yeah. So important. It's a, it's a conversation that sadly is sort of relatively, I think, new in our, mm. in our newer than, than other things in our, in our field, I think maybe particular to the last 30 ish mm-hmm. 30 to 40 years you know when psychology has existed as a discipline for you know several hundred years but we're sort of having this conversation now but it is so important um to think about not just the individual but also the social and what that means for a person yeah totally so go to therapy as I always say <laughs> yes <laughs> and you too can learn about your social context <laughs> yes well, I think that has kind of wrapped up everything we wanted to talk about. Was there any like last words you wanted to say about Pride and Prejudice 2005? Great, great movie. <laughs> Gotta throw back to your, to your younger days and, yeah. you know, settle in. <laughs> 10 and out of 10. I, I, I still, maybe it's just because of the nostalgia that I have for it. I know a lot of people prefer I don't know. Is it like a PBS version? The, the BBC like one? No, the, oh yeah. Okay. BBC, the BBC version with Colin Firth. I think most people prefer that, but um, this one still has my heart for sure. This, yeah. This one is great. It's also a lot shorter than the BBC one. So, you know, you're in a bind. Pop in Pride and Prejudice 2005 and just, you know, see where it takes you. I also was reading in the Wikipedia that Matthew McFadden at the time he was cast in this role was like not a well-known actor. And now mm-hmm. he's like in succession and like, like, I, I think he's pretty famous now. So if you want to see Matthew McFadden launch his career, Pride and Prejudice 2005. <laughs> yeah. Also just Keira Knightley. It's just Keira great. Knightley. She's killing it. Empire waist yeah. dresses, you know, they're out here doing the work. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's great, you know, rain, oh, confrontation yeah. scenes, <laughs> you know. Yeah, misty, gotta, gotta misty fields, sunrises, yeah. sunsets. It's, yeah, it's the, got everything. The soundtrack is great. Soundtrack is great. Yeah, I definitely listen to it to like write notes. Yeah, <laughs> very soothing. Okay, well, thank you for joining us on this episode, Tatiana. We're glad to have you. Yes. Um, and to everyone else, thank you for listening all the way to the end. I'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.